Well, good morning. Thanks for, for having us. Um, my wife and I got to have dinner with your pastors last night, and we were reflecting that it was 10 years ago this week when we first pulled into Chattanooga. That has me emotional this morning, by the way, and I'll talk about that in a second. Um, that's really beautiful. Um, ten years ago, this week, we stayed at Market Anita's like we did last night. And the Lord led us here in July of 2012 to move here, be founding members. This place always makes me emotional. Uh moved here as a family of four, left as a family of five, three and a half years ago. We're now a family of six. I guess we haven't figured out how that keeps happening. Um, thanks to UK Medicine, we've put a stop to that. Um, hopefully that'll snap me out of it now. Um, so we're in Lexington, Lexington Kentucky. Um, God called us there. We moved there three and a half years ago. Uh, it's funny. It's, it's weird because I know like when I'm out of town, I have to say Lexington. But like it's, it's funny because we don't even think about the city of Lexington anymore. We just think about Cardinal Valley. We think about Cardinal Valley. Cardinal Valley is an overlooked and neglected black and brown community in our city. The racists in our city will call it Little Mexico or Mexington. And I rebuke them openly when I hear it. I don't stand for it anymore. I heard it when I first moved there, but I didn't know enough to, to know what I was hearing. We, the Lord, led our church to plant in that area about a year and a half ago. And then about a year ago, we started doing everything that we do as a church in that community. This community is the, there are two areas in Lexington that are impoverished. Um, one of them is on the north side. It has a population of about uh, 1,500 people. Um, it's being gentrified as we speak. But the west side of Lexington, what some people call Mexington, uh, is, has a population of over 12,000 in a very, very small area. So where our church meets is at a park in a community center. There's a playground about maybe 100 feet from that community center. And about 100 yards from there, a body was found, and not in one piece. Because the Mexican cartel actually has a major stake in our community. So there is destruction and violence and death that's happening among people who are made in the image of God. And just because they don't look the same as the affluent white neighborhoods, they are as much made in the image of God as anyone else. And just because they may not have the paperwork to file a W-4 or a W-9 does not mean you know, I love the line KB the rapper says, I love my neighbor more than I love his papers. So they're in our community, they're in our neighborhood, and so there are people, there are our brothers and sisters 
And we are there to have a presence in their lives for the gospel. So, I'm sorry. Um, But I wanted to give you a little bit of a glimpse of our heart. Isaiah and Elizabeth got to meet my other, our other pastor. So I'm one of the pastors at Bluegrass. Our other pastor, Nestor Gomez, born in Caraita, Mexico. Came to the U.S. uh, eight, I guess going on nine years ago. Smartest person I've ever met in my life. Uh, he, w- we do bilingual services like you do, which that is of no small significance. That's part of the reason why I'm so emotional already this morning. This is hugely significant. I hope you realize this. That is so beautiful. Bilingual services. But Nestor will literally, <laughs> without a transcript, we've tried to provide that. He says no. But he, on the fly, will interpret our, our, even when he's preaching, he'll preach in English, and he'll pause, and he'll preach in Spanish. So it's just this crazy thing. And the Lord has already provided an African pastor to join us. He's from Ghana. He's joining our team in January through the amazing, generous partnership of the largest church in our city. They're actually paying for that position. It's like insane what God's doing. Um, you know, so it's, it's awesome to see, like, there are seven languages that we've just, just so far in a year that we've encountered in this community. Um, I probably couldn't even name them all from memory, but there are seven languages that we know of so far. So we're praying to pray with us like that God will provide someone to make us like have trilingual services with Swahili being the next biggest need in our uh, community. So um, we are so grateful I'll wrap my kind of intro of myself and our church here we are so grateful for the ongoing partnership of sojourn here in chattanooga like obviously we have a lot of history here I was a pastor here for five years or so of the time that we were here we were here i think about seven years six and a half seven years uh, but we are so grateful mark lawazo just one example mark lawazo texts me every sunday morning to let me know that he's praying for me means the world that means the world to us uh nick and i wherever you are we talk all the time devin who i've known for where are you um for 20 years now over 20 um we keep in touch so even though we've been gone for three and a half years uh this place as you can tell by emotion my emotions this morning this place is a huge part of my life and of my heart. And so thank you. Thanks for having us. Thanks for supporting us. Thanks for praying for us. Thanks for highlighting us in your lobby. Uh, it really does mean a lot. Because when you plant a church, it's hard. When you plant a church in the midst of a, a pandemic, I would not recommend it. It's excruciatingly painful. And when you add to that that the Lord clearly leads you to the least of these in your city, and you're planting a church among the, the materially poor, uh, among the oppressed and the overlooked and the outcast in the, in the city, um, it's really, really, really difficult, and there is spiritual warfare at every turn we've literally like I I don't have there's no seminary class for this there's no training course or YouTube video to watch and brush up on this we've had to like go into apartments 
where people are like, I'm convinced that my apartment building is like possessed by demons. I'm like, uh, okay. Like, you know, um, and there's language barrier and all this, but like we show up and we pray and we just trust that Jesus will do something, right? So, um, like it's, I have no idea what I'm doing. I have no idea what I'm doing. I just show up, right? Um, but so I, I, I just say all that to say, like, thanks for your support. Please continue to pray for us. And we just love, love, love you. And we love this church. So hopefully I'll stop crying now. And now we can kind of switch gears. So here's the beginning of the sermon. <laughs> let go and let God probably heard that term before, that phrase before, right? Let go and let God. And I'm assuming that the intended meaning behind that phrase, behind that statement, is to let go of or release your anxieties and worries and trust God with all of it. To let go of your attempts to control everything around you and to let God be in control. So I guess, according to to that counsel, let go and let God, we're to do nothing, say nothing, feel nothing, and then just simply like live passively, allowing circumstances to roll over, roll over us however they may. But there's a problem with that. Let go and let God. I'm sure it was with great intentions, but it's really problematic. I'm sure it's problematic for several reasons, but I just want to point out a couple of reasons for now. First, you and I don't let go of anything. As Jared C. Wilson puts it, quote, this makes God sound a lot like he is our servant, a cosmic butler of sorts, rather than, oh, I don't know, God. We are told that we need to let God, oh, I said this backwards, we don't let God do anything, not let go of anything. I'll go to that next, sorry. I cued this up wrong. First, you and I don't let God do anything. So we're told that we need to let God do all manner of things before we can, he can guide us, bless us, reward us, and so on. To all of this, we ought to say that God, who, that any God who needs us to activate him is not much of a God at all. So God says in Jeremiah 32, look, I am the Lord, the God over every creature is anything too difficult for me. He doesn't need our help, and he doesn't need our permission. The true God is sovereign over all. If he does not do something, it is because ultimately he has willed not to do it. Even the faith that we exercise to receive his salvation, is that me? Uh, even the faith that we exercise to receive his salvation, which was, then, which was until then withheld, it's, it itself is a gift from God, Ephesians 2.8. So second, so we don't let God do anything, and second, we don't let go of anything. We don't let go of responsibility and do nothing, say nothing, feel nothing, and simply live passively, allowing circumstances to roll over us however they may. In Luke 13, Jesus clearly tells us to make every effort to enter through the narrow door to eternal life in heaven. Because I tell you, many will try to enter and won't be able. So he's saying, make effort. In 1 Timothy 6, 12 says, fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of eternal life to which you, are, you were called and about which you have made a good confession 
in the presence of many witnesses. So he's saying fight and take hold. Those are active things. You're not letting go of stuff. Ephesians 6, verses 11 and 12, put on the full armor of God so that you can stand against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, the authorities, the cosmic powers of darkness, against evil, against spiritual forces in the heavens. So this is an active, not letting go, passive, and active call. And then lastly, James 2.14, we're probably really familiar with this one. If someone claims to have faith but does not have works, if someone claims to have faith but does not have works, he says, can that faith save him? He's basically saying, if you say you have faith but it's not showing up in anything you're doing, that's not real faith. We're not just candy apple heads on a stick. We are whole beings that God made with minds and hearts, emotions, emotional centers with souls and with hands and feet. So we are actually called to do stuff. You don't let go. You don't let God do anything and you don't let go of anything. So here's where we find ourselves in Philippians 2. We are considering the work of God and our work. We confess by faith that the God of the Bible, our God, is the God who created the heavens and the earth. He is the maker and sustainer of all of life and breath. He holds all things together, even at the cellular level. So in that, in that confession that we make by faith, we are recognizing the immense and vast power of our God. He's all-powerful, all-knowing, all-good, infinite, and many other things that I could mention. And He is not just powerful in the grandiose, but He is also powerful to pursue us and save us and redeem us and call us His children through adoption. And we, His gospel-adopted children, are no doubt changed and transformed by the power of His love, God's power to save us and change us then begins to powerfully work in our lives and through us to do good in this world and to work. In the same way that we know from the truth of Scripture that we love because He first loved us, right? We're a conduit for blessing. So I experience God's love and then all of a sudden I become a loving person. I experience God's grace, and guess what? I get to extend grace to others. It's through God's kindness is the only hope I have to be kind. So in the same way that we know we love because He first loved us, it is also true that we can say we work because He's worked in us. The way Paul says this in our text today is he says work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. So we'll unpack that more so in a few minutes, but I want to just pause for a moment and make one thing really, really clear. I want to say like what we're not saying so that it's really clear what we are saying. We are not saying that you and I work for our salvation, but we clearly do work out our salvation. Now, I'll talk more about that in a moment, 
but the point of being of clarity is that there is nothing I can do to earn salvation. There's nothing I can do to earn heaven. There's nothing I can do to make God love me more. It's impossible. But once I have experienced the love of God, it clearly changes me and I work that out. So, our big idea today, I don't know if this will be on the screen or not, uh, but I'll try to make it really clear. Our big idea today is that God works in us and we also work. God works in us and we also work. And so we're going to flesh that out in three ways through this text Uh, In verses 12 and 13, point number one is put in work. Point two, stick to truth, verses 14 to 16. And then number three, rejoice and be glad, verses 16 through 18. Let's pause for a moment and pray. Uh, God, I ask that you would help us to be changed by this truth. God, that again that we wouldn't just see um, when we get to gather and hear the word preached and sing and do liturgy together, like, God, that this would not just be an exercise of our minds, but God, help us to break out of that to where we're not just here to acquire knowledge and information, but God, would you do something that only you can do and make this a time of transformation? God, yes, change our minds. God, grip our hearts. And God, like, motivate the work of our hands. And so, God, we ask you to do that in the name of Jesus. Amen. So, number one, I want to encourage you, and I want to point out that what Paul says in Philippians 2 is he's calling us to put in work. Verse 12, he starts off and he says, Therefore, my dear friends... So therefore is always a connecting word to the passage before it. The passage before this, Paul had basically written a hymn about Jesus and about the humility of Jesus, that Jesus, although he had the most reason of anyone to boast and be arrogant and say, look, heaven is here, listen up, hush up, Everything I say is pure gold. He didn't do any of that. He never did that. In fact, if you read through the Gospels, it's kind of confusing because Jesus tells people like, hey, you just realize I'm the Son of God? Shh, don't tell anybody. Like, wait, what? No, no, Jesus, this is a terrible marketing strategy. Like, that's a bad idea, right? But that's what Jesus did because he walked the road of humility to the point of death and excruciatingly painful and humiliating death on a cross. The worst of thieves and robbers and murderers would get that death. That's what Jesus got. And so Paul's grounding the, this passage when he says, therefore, my dear friends, he's grounding in it, hey, the humility of Jesus then begins to work out in us in this way. So he's grounding this passage uh, in the character of Jesus, namely his humility. And then he goes on and he says, just as you have always obeyed. So it is of no small significance that the Apostle Paul, maybe the greatest Christian leader that's ever walked the earth, he's writing from a dimly lit prison cell. And he points out the obedience of the Christians who made up the church congregation in a little town called Philippi. 
Paul had experienced from these Philippian believers from day one that they were faithful. They were faithful to Paul as a leader, and more importantly, they were faithful to God. And he had heard, and Paul had heard, continued reports of their ongoing faithfulness and obedience to God. He goes on in verse 12, he says, So now, not only in my presence, but even more in my absence. So you've been faithful from the beginning, and now, even when I'm not there, I'm getting reports that your obedience, your faithfulness is actually growing. So you don't need me as a leader. That's when you know that a leader's actually doing their job. You know, I'm the founding pastor of Bluegrass Community Church. Today's our first Sunday morning. I'm not there. And like, I probably wouldn't have planned it that way, but I'm like super thankful for it. It's not about me. And I don't care. I don't care. Like, you know, I've started a construction company because I went to Lexington believing that Lexington didn't need more white leadership. It needed less. And so I am so glad that later this year, we're going to bring Nestor Gomez on by God's grace and and like Lord willing, we're going to bring him on to staff and I'll keep swinging a hammer. Because it's not about me. Leadership doesn't mean that I get to create my own comfort zone and I get to always like reap the benefits of my leadership. Lexington needs more black and brown leadership. I don't know about Chattanooga, I'm speaking for my city. It needs less white leadership. It needs decentralization of whiteness, and and especially in a black and brown community. In fact, I'm the first white guy in a a, uh, church planting initiative called the Creek Collective. I'm like, what the heck am I doing there? But I'm super thankful that our church has been able to partner with them, be trained in how to reach neighborhoods like we're reaching. And that's what Paul's doing here. He's pointing this out and saying, look, your faithfulness, your obedience to God is growing even more in my absence, not just in my presence. And he continues to urge them that they should continue that faithful obedience and continue to grow in that, whether he hears about it or not, or whether he is still around for it or not. In other words, if he's still alive or not, because at this time, Paul has no idea. Like, my, I might be killed tomorrow. He's in prison. And then he goes to this big line. He says, work out your own salvation. So here's where our Kentucky language helps a lot. This is not work out your salvation. This is work out y'all's salvation, right? So Kentucky, I I really think we need to make a Kentucky translation of the Bible because there's a lot more y'alls in here than there are you. And that's one of the problems that we have is we've made it about, I'm just going to go get in my prayer closet by myself and have my personal Bible study. And it's like, no, 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 no. Hey, like, that's not, you know that the written Bible is a really, really recent thing. Like, I mean, a printed copy. So these early believers who were growing in obedience and faithfulness to God, they didn't have a printed Bible. They had a few letters. They pass around and read out loud. They'd have a meal They'd read the thing in entirety, out loud, and then they would pray and they'd go home. Nobody preached, just read the Bible. Paul says, work out your own salvation. So again, this is not a works-based salvation. We can't earn that. You're saved by grace through faith. Not, it's not from your own doing, not from yourselves. It's God's gift, not from works so that no one can boast. God has worked salvation 
for us by his sovereign grace alone. Jesus has done the work on the cross to bring us justification, right? Big, fancy Bible word. Justifying us, which means he has made us, it's a legal term, he's now made us in right and good standing in the courts before God. He's pronounced us innocent when we deserved guilt. That's what justification means. And then he, so what he's saying, we're justified, you don't work for, but he says you work out your salvation. Here's another big fancy Bible word. That, uh, so if salvation means justification, work out is our sanctification. And again, another big fancy Bible word. Uh, so let me give you a definition. Bradford A. Bradford a. Mullen says it this way, quote, the generic meaning of sanctification is the state of proper functioning. To sanctify someone or something is to set that person or thing apart for the intended use by its designer. A pen, an ink pen, is sanctified when it's used to write. Eyeglasses are sanctified when they're used to improve sight. In the theological sense, Things are sanctified when they are used for the good purpose that God intends. A human being is sanctified, therefore, when he or she lives according to God's design and purpose, end quote. So one way to think about what Paul is saying here, to work out our own salvation, is to see our salvation, our justification, evident more and more in every area of our lives, our work. Not like our like, vocational job, but everything that we do. So I know I've referred to this several times. Um, sorry, that was a quote from, my, uh, from specific to our church. I quote, this, I quote this regularly. When Paul says to work out your, your own salvation, it just reminds me of the quote from the late, great uh, Eugene Peterson. He, he talks about a long obedience in the same direction. So... I think a lot of times we live by like a triumphalism in American Christianity where like everything we do has to be like these big grand stories of like, hey, let me tell you about like I met John Doe at work and I shared Jesus with him and he got saved and he stopped drinking and he stopped doing, you know, you know, everything has to be this like big grandiose story. But most of life does not happen like that. So I love that Eugene Peterson, the late great pastor, calls it a long obedience in the same direction because most of the Christian life is stinking boring. Your daily grind is holy ground. Your faithfulness in the little things, in the boring things, in the mundane, repeating things, a long obedience in the same direction. So I'm not trying to throw out a sermon here to say like, you need to be on the mission field tomorrow. Maybe some of, some of you are being called to that. Walk that out. Take your time. Be patient. Follow all the Lord's leading. Find the right organizations to partner with. Do all that. We walked that out. Little bitty church like us. We have a missionary in a part of the world I can't uh, tell you about for security reasons. Uh, but we were able to do that. And it took about a year. But we sent her. We laid hands on her and prayed for her. And we keep in touch with her. In fact, you can pray for, I'll just call her uh, the letter B. You can pray for B. Her city had two earthquakes this week. And so it is insane right there, right now. The 
just getting, wrapping up Ramadan. She's in a Muslim context. It's, it's crazy. Please pray for B. But it's not always about going on the mission field. It's not always about these grandiose gestures for the kingdom. The long obedience in the same direction. And then I love that Paul follows that up. Work out your own salvation with this line, with fear and trembling. So this means to have a proper respect for God's holiness and proper reverence for God's blessings. The experience we have in receiving His mercy and grace. And we cannot have, we cannot have a, a cavalier attitude toward obedience to God and toward sin or toward our pursuit of holiness. So this fear and trembling that Paul is mentioning here is an inward thing that God does in us. He cultivates deeply rooted humble character in his sons and daughters. This fear and trembling, taking holiness, the holiness of our God seriously and taking our pursuit of personal, individual, and communal holiness seriously. This fear and trembling isn't a cowering in fear, like, oh God, don't hurt me. It's not a cowering in fear, a fear of hell or damnation, uh, but a reverent, joyful, humble confidence. Confident in who God is and confident in who God says we are, His children. It's confidence in the work that God's done. So when you see me or you see things happening in my life, there, I have this confidence because of, I've seen all this faithfulness in the background, right? So if I can give you an analogy for this, my son, who's 10, I, I guess he's about this tall, he's a giant 10-year-old, he's my switch-hitting catcher, my pot of gold, my retirement policy. Um, but Sam, I will say this, he's a great hitter, but he's a great hitter because he has put in the work. And so when Sam is in the batter's box, and we're getting older now, and we're starting to face some really tough pitching. And these kids are throwing hard, and like half the kids are in there like, oh, you know, like backing out. Like, I do not want to get, some of them get her, getting hit in the helmet. Other kids see that, and like, not me. Like, they're literally like, you know, running away from the ball. Sam, he's a quiet kid. He's pretty reserved. But there is this confidence that you can see in him when he's standing in the batter's box from the right side or left side. And you know why? Because uh, just about every day, he is out in our backyard hitting off the tee into that net. And I have seen, I've been able to coach high school ball, and I've watched kids go on and play college ball, and I can tell you across the board, without discrimination, the ones that make it are the ones that have put in the hundreds and thousands of reps on that tee. So when I look at these boys that we coach and Sam, both Sam's teams, his rec team and his travel team, I tell them all this all the time. I have all these goofy sayings that I repeat all the time, but I tell them, T-work makes the dream work. It's true because it's all those reps. It's all that muscle memory. It's all those just that practice. He's put in the time. So when game time shows up and when people are looking at him, they don't see all of that stuff in the background. But there's this quiet and humble confidence that shows up in, this, in the batter's box. That's the exact same thing that happens in us in the Christian life. When we're living our lives, it's all of God's work and faithfulness in the background 
all of the communion that we've had with God in the background, it's the only way we're going to have this fear and trembling, quiet and humble, unshakable confidence in who God is and who he says we are. <clears throat> Verse 13. For it is God who is working in, uh, in you both to will and to work according to his good purpose. So check this. The work that we're called to do is driven by the work of God. Our work is built on the foundation of God's work. It's empowered by God, the Holy Spirit, indwelling us. And it was established by the work of Jesus on the cross. Dead, buried, and victoriously risen and reigning. Our work is... Uh, is honored by and sustained by God. And he does this. God does this thing. I don't know how. I don't have it all figured out. I'm not smart enough for that. But God does this thing where he like ties it all together for his good purposes. Romans 8. For his good purposes and not always fitting into your purposes. So I'll give you an example. When we first moved to Lexington, we had a single mom that we ha were able to connect with. And my wife was so unbelievably faithful and made tons of sacrifices and gave this single mom rides to work and rides to the grocery, just rides all the time. And none of them ever went according to schedule or plan or routine. It was always like, I'm getting here at this time, and I'm sitting there waiting for her to come out. I mean, it was always inconvenient, right? And then just for her to ghost us. Like, we haven't heard from her in like two years. Then, like, there's, right now we have a Congolese refugee family that our church is serving. I mean, so sacrificially our folks are serving this family, giving of time and resources, giving rides that also don't go according to plan or routine, filling out government forms, helping them file for government assistance, dropping off rent checks to landlords. And now we've said like, hey man, our church community is perfect for you. And the mom says, nope, I have to hear the word of God in Swahili. Not come to your church. She will confess and admit, I have no friends at church. They don't even like me. I'm the darkest person there. They don't, the, like, it's colorism. And like, she's like, they don't like me. I have no community there. But I have to hear the word of God in Swahili. Like, so in one sense, we're like, praise God, you're hearing the God, the, like, you're hearing the Bible preached. But it's also like, man, you should really connect in the life of our church. So it goes according to God's plans, not always to your plans. We've had families that have plugged into our church. And then our kids, our sweet kids connect with their sweet kids. And these friendships form. And then those families just leave. Sometimes with like no conversation and definitely no explanation, then our kids are just like, did we hurt their feelings? Like, I don't know. Probably I did. Uh, but I can say this, like God works all this stuff for his purposes, not always according to your purposes, but I can say when you go and plant a church in an impoverished, neglected, and overlooked community, in other words, you go to plant a church in an unconventional and tough place, you get to see unconventional displays of beauty. Like getting to see a man walking in recovery from alcoholism who relapses one Sunday and shows up to your church meeting intoxicated and shows his butt, sort of, not literally, figuratively, right? Thankfully. Getting to sit in that man, driving that man home that night, so he's not drunk driving like he did on the way. Getting to sit in that man's living room and through tears hear him say, it was just a matter of time that I got found out. And I know you guys won't be back. You'll abandon me like my ex-wife did. 
and you'll abandon me like my former church did. And I remember like sitting, you know, at an angle with him and I said, hey, hey, look at me. And he wouldn't. I said it five times and finally he put his eyes on me. I said, I am right here and I'm not going anywhere. And I mean, it was intense. I mean, I'm an intense guy, you can tell, right? But I was like three feet from the man and, and he heard it. Like you could watch it physically hit his soul. And he's been back. And not only has he been back, but he came back too. He had military duty the next weekend. He came back two weeks later, asked permission, and he issued an apology to our entire church for showing up intoxicated and shared a little bit of his story. Uh, and our church, one of the prayers has been like, God would allow us to see like a pervasive culture of grace get formed. Our church was unbelievably forgiving and restoring to him. It was so amazing. So God works this stuff for his purposes, not always in a clean and comfortable way. And sometimes you get to see the beauty even in your own purposes. Another example, like seeing a member of the community, our friend Aaron, an African-American man who grew up in uh, eastern Kentucky, now lives in Lexington. He's had a really rough, hard life. He experienced many forms of abuse by the time he was the, at, at the age eight. The guy has an, a crazy hard story. But he literally felt the freedom to barge, and I mean barge, into our church meeting. Hey, what y'all doing in here? Like, that's a direct quote. That's exactly how he said it. Hey, what y'all doing in here? They're like, well, this is the church. Like, you're welcome to join us. And he like kind of took over that meeting. We were able to take him to lunch the next week. Um, and the transformation that we're seeing in Aaron's life is unbelievable. Aaron's currently in jail from a, he, I think it was about three weeks after we met him, he got incarcerated from a previous outstanding warrant. He's in for 90 days. So we were like, oh no, like we were having so much momentum with Aaron relationally seeing the Lord's work. So after the dust kind of settled after those first few days, now Aaron has started a Bible study among his fellow inmates. Like, I don't even know this guy's a believer yet. I don't, I don't know. But this is awesome. Like, um, it just never goes according to plan. Last Sunday, like getting the opportunity with another church and the local park activity board, which I'm a member of, um, and a city council member rallying her folks, we put on an Easter egg hunt for the Cardinal Valley community. We had 16,000 eggs, no helicopter egg drop or anything like that. We had 16,000 eggs that were donated by several churches and the candy to fill them. We had tons of volunteers that packed those things until our hands were bleeding from clicking those dang plastic eggs. But we, had, we saw, I don't know the exact numbers because it was total chaos. It was awesome. Uh, but there were at least 400 kids. There might have been closer to 500 kids. Um, and it was like a plague of locusts. Like those eggs, I promise you there were, it was 15,983 eggs, 17 short of, of 16,000 eggs, and they were all picked up and in bags in eight minutes. It was amazing. Like, man, I, it was like Chick-fil-A doing something, like efficient work, right? But the point is, is that like you get to be a part of these things, and you get to see these glimpses of beauty. Doesn't always work. A lot of it's hard, but then the, the beauty you get to see in the work of God that you can't take credit for and you can't explain is worth every second of the effort. Trusting God to work according to His good purposes.
So put in work. Number two, and I promise two and three are much shorter. Uh, stick to truth. Do everything, verse 14, Paul says, do everything without grumbling and arguing. Let me just say, grumbling and arguing is the opposite of fear and trembling. Grumbling and arguing looks at other people for its values. It doesn't look to God. It doesn't look to the example of Jesus. It's not driven by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in us. Grumbling and arguing only looks horizontally to define its values because it's all about comparisons. Grumbling and arguing requires finding the faults and flaws in everyone else in order to build itself up and make itself feel better. Grumbling and arguing spins its wheels for countless wasted hours and hours on all sorts of social media looking for all the ways this world has lost its mind and is going to hell in a handbasket. Grumbling and arguing will devour you. Paul says avoid grumbling and arguing. It will make you miserable. It will not look good on you. And if you avoid grumbling and arguing, Paul says in verse 15 that you will be blameless and pure. Children of God who are faultless in the midst of a crooked and perverted generation, among whom you shine like stars in the world. So you'll bring light to the world around you. Maybe not in flashy or dramatic ways, like the connotation of like, or, or the like idea of like having shine like stars on a t-shirt, but maybe in a long obedience in the same direction, your daily grind is holy ground sort of way, where the beauty and the luminescence of that steady, glowing star will have in the vast darkness of the world around you. So that coworker that you've shared about Jesus with and prayed for and invited to church and invited to your dinner table or invited into your life in some way, you never know when that impact may sink in. It may come years from now It may bear fruit, and you may not even learn of it ever when it does. But it's clear here from God's Word that we have the opportunity to shine light in this crooked and perverted world around us. So my wife has a friend named Kim, and, and Kim came to Jesus in 2021, one of her co-workers. Now, I know when you hear that, you might think like, oh, okay, like they work together. That's awesome. Like, no, they worked together in 2009 when we lived in Louisville. We moved to Florida, Tennessee, and Lexington since then. 13 years, well, 12 years, I guess, from the last time we were in the same city and the last time they were coworkers. But 12 years of prayer and gospel presence and friendship in her life And in the midst of some really hard stuff in Kim's life, she trusted Jesus, and we were able to connect her to the, well, we were able to kind of help her try to find a healthy church in her small town in Kansas. It's crazy. Thankfully, we've gotten the blessing of hearing about it and getting to, like, hear her baptism story and all the beautiful, cool stuff, right? You don't always get that. The point is, that was a coworker from 12 years removed, right? So stay faithful in the little things. Stay faithful. Daily grind is holy ground. Stay faithful because you never know 
the testimony and the witness that you're giving today that might bear fruit in 20 or 30 years. Stay faithful. And how do we do that? Verse 16, by holding firm to the word of life. So we will do this stuff. We'll work out our salvation. We'll walk in fear and trembling. We'll stay opposed to grumbling and arguing. We'll be blameless and pure while in the midst of a crooked and perverted generation. We'll shine like stars in a dark world. We can have long obedience in the same direction. We can walk with our daily grind being holy ground by holding firm to the word of life. The word of life is the Bible. It's God's word full of truth, full of life. And we hold firm in it by having it as a regular part of our lives. So in the life of our church, like in the life of your church, we preach from it. We sing the Bible's truth together. We will rehearse and recite its truth in liturgy. We will foster a culture to point one another to the Bible in organic and informal conversations and informal discussions that we create space for. We will encourage one another to read it, memorize it, meditate on it, And we will hold firm in our convictions about the Bible, that the Bible is God-breathed, inspired, that it's, uh, and then therefore it's true, without error, inerrant, that it's without falsehood, it's infallible, that the Bible is useful in teaching, correcting, training in righteousness, 2 Timothy 3.16. And that it's practically helpful because it's powerful. Hebrews, 12, uh, Hebrews 4, verse 12 says, For the word of God is living and active uh, and effective and sharper than any two-edged sword, penetrating as far as the separation of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It is able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. This isn't just any book. This is the word of God, and it has power. And so we're going to hold firm to it. So stick to truth. And then number three, rejoice and be glad. If you read the book of Philippians, the word joy and rejoice shows up all over the place. So Paul's just repeating things that he's saying throughout the book of Philippians. Uh, Verse 16, second half of verse 16, Paul says, then, so he's saying all of this stuff, right? Humility of Christ in the first part of, of Philippians 2. He says, now work out your own salvation, avoid grumbling and arguing, be blameless and pure. He says all this stuff, and he says, then, when that's happening in you, When that work is happening in you, then I, Paul, can boast in the day of Christ that I didn't run or labor for nothing. So I'm I'm advocating that we put in work. God works in us and we put in work. But the Bible allows us here, it gives us permission to have a selfish ambition in it. Here's what I mean by that. I'm allowed to want to see good stuff happen from my work. That's what Paul says. Then I can boast in the day of Christ that I didn't run or labor for nothing in vain, right? That's a good thing. It's a good thing to want good results. Don't demonize that. And we get full permission here. Because otherwise you'd say, oh man, Paul is so selfish. He wants the Philippian church to live all that... Uh, live all that out so that he, Paul, can boast and brag when he gets to heaven that he didn't run or labor for nothing. Like, you selfish jerk! That's not what this says. Paul's pride here is not in sinful boasting and conceit, 
but appropriate joy in what God has accomplished. And Paul just got to be a part of it and see it and experience it. He won't be boasting in his accomplishments or about his goodness or his craftiness or his skill, but in the goodness and the power of God. Verse 17. These are really somber, heavy words when you realize that Paul's sitting in prison. And we know punchline, or uh, uh, spoiler alert, we know the punchline of this, like Paul gets killed relatively shortly after this. So these are really heavy words as Paul knew what was coming. Verse 17, he says, but even if I'm poured out as a drink offering, even if I'm killed as a martyr for Jesus, on the sacrificial service of your faith, even if I die trying to serve you, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. It's worth it. Verse 18, in the same way, you should also be glad and rejoice in me. Part of the reason why he says that last part is he knows their concern that he might get killed. And he's like, no, be glad and rejoice. So for Paul, even if his life were to end dying as a martyr for Jesus, dying a brutal death on behalf of the Christian church, as I said, spoiler alert, that's what happened, he was content. Not just content, but glad and filled with joy and actively rejoicing with these brothers and sisters in the faith. And he urges the Philippians to share in that same gladness and rejoicing. The Apostle Paul is saying this when times were hard, right? He's in prison. He knows that probably the end result is he's going to get killed. And the Philippians were having a hard time too. You know, they were immigrants. They were half-breeds. They were Jews, but not in the same way as the other Hebrew Jews. They were Hellenistic Jews. And so they were having these false teachers come in and say, yeah, you believe in Jesus, but you also got to get crucified or uh, circumcised. Excuse me. Uh, you got to get circumcised, and you have to obey these dietary laws, which for them, like, I don't want to give up my bacon, Right? I'm kidding about that, but the reality is, is like they, none of that, all of that stuff was foreign to them. And so like they don't really feel like other people that live in Philippi because they're now Christians. And then these other Christians had this other set of rules. These Jewish Christians, the Judaizers is the fancy word in the scriptures. They were putting pressure on them. So these people felt really attacked from a lot of angles. So Paul's saying this stuff, and it's not just vague and ethereal, like print it and put it on your wall. Like, No, this is like really heavy language. Rejoice and be glad in the midst of this crazy hard stuff going on around you. They faced significant suffering, and he's saying be glad and rejoice. Yes, because Jesus is Lord, Jesus is worth it, Jesus will bring to completion the work that he started in you, and in Jesus and through Jesus, we are doing better than we deserve to, right? We've been declared innocent when we should be guilty. So as, as we close, my dearly loved brothers and sisters, the same language that Paul used, let me put it in modern language. That just means I love y'all 
and I like y'all. I want you to hear something. That there is something so much better than let go and let God. I know some of us have embraced that in some small way, let go and let God. That's a lie. And there's something so much better than that. Something more true, something more biblical, something more healthy. I want you to hear that instead of let go and let God, I want you to hear the statement, trust God and work hard for His kingdom and for your joy. Because the reality is that you can work hard. Like I think as, as Christians by God's work, we, have, we end up getting like a fierce work ethic and a fierce rest ethic. That's what sets us apart from this crazy world, right? But I want you to know that you can work hard and you can desire to see that hard work result in good things. And I want you to hear that your labor in Jesus is not in vain. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say a series of statements that I know are very familiar. Sound cliche. So I, if you don't mind, if you're able close your eyes, bow your head, because I want you to, I want just, I want these words to resonate with maybe a little bit of a different ring to them. And I just want to pronounce these words over you, like maybe even hold out your hands to kind of receive this truth from God, not from me. But please hear this. My brother, my sister, fight the good fight. Keep the faith persevere hold fast christ in the midst of your suffering in the midst of your hardship in the midst of your loss in the midst of your pain your labor is not in vain your pain is not in vain your serving of others and serving the least of these as jesus described them is not in vain your faith is not in vain. You can trust God and work hard and it will not be in vain. You can know that your Father in heaven, He sees you. He is pleased with you because of the work of Jesus. He looks at your life and He sees the righteousness of Jesus on you. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling and pursue joy at its finest and pursue joy at its fullness that's joy in jesus let's pray god please help us to break out of this mindset that we let go and let god god help us to trust you and to work hard and to rest hard god i pray in these moments right now that you would use us to do your work, that we would step into these pieces of our society and our culture where there are systemic injustices, and we would step into those places and be a presence of the gospel, to embody the gospel. God, I pray for this church right here that you would help her to become 
integrated into this neighborhood right here where we sit to be an embodiment of your gospel, your good news. God, we ask that you would do a work in us, not just me and us as individuals, but you would do a work in us as your people. God, thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.